Welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. Good day, everyone. I'm Steve King, the Managing Director at Cyber Theory. Today's episode will explore some of the recent breaches following the solar winds and Excelion disasters and what we can do about mitigating this wave of increasing cyber attacks into the future. Joining me in this discussion today is Andy Purdy, the Chief Security Officer for Huawei USA. A little bit of background on Andy. He uh, also served as the Senior Cybersecurity Official of the U.S. government from 2004 through 2006. And prior to joining the Department of Homeland Security, Andy was a member of the White House staff where he helped draft the U.S. National Strategy to Secure Cyberspace in 2003 after which he went on to the Department of Homeland Security, where he helped to form and then lead the National Cyber Security Division, aka NCSD, and the U.S. Computer Emergency Readiness Team, also known as U.S. CERT. Immediately prior to joining Huawei, Andy was the Chief Cybersecurity Strategist for Computer Sciences Corporation, and is also a former federal prosecutor and congressional counsel. A really smart and technically competent CISO. Welcome, Andy, and thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you. Great. So before we talk solar winds, let's get to the elephant in the room. Many people within the U.S. believe that Huawei is a threat to national security, which must put you in a continually challenging and difficult position. Please tell our listeners why this is a fairy tale and why we shouldn't be concerned. Well, it's uh, very significant challenges in cybersecurity and, frankly, privacy protection. The latter is not getting quite the attention of the former. I think what we see, and we will talk more later about, about solar winds and the Microsoft Exchange server uh, breaches, which may be even, even more significant. But I think uh, we're beginning to see that the bad guys don't need permission from suppliers to use their products to hack into systems or to spy or to gather data or or what have you. Well, I guess what encourages me is that I think a number of the activities going along and there doesn't really feel like they're they're all consolidated and all organized now in in the United States, but there's a lot of really strong activity. There's a lot of visibility. Uh, I think there's a sense that there's a wake-up call and hopefully this is not going to be like so many other wake-up calls in the past that we we wake up and then we fall asleep and we really don't address things because I think these issues are, are fundamentally important. I think we have quite a competitive geopolitical situation between uh, the United States and China with the rest of the world playing uh, different kinds of uh, different kinds of roles. And, uh, you know, I think our fundamental approach is you should trust no one. You shouldn't trust China. You shouldn't trust Huawei. You shouldn't trust Nokia Ericsson. You shouldn't trust anyone that the sophistication of the cyber actor, particularly five or six nation states, uh, means that we really have to have a more systematic approach the risk management at all levels. And we really have to promote greater transparency and greater accountability, both of which I think are sorely lacking. Well, as a fair argument, I think, and particularly in the fact that, you know, the bad guys don't need permission and whether Huawei or anybody else can easily be, as we've seen with SolarWinds and others here recently, uh, you know, a vehicle for entry and compromise and and the rest of it. So thank you for, for addressing that. You know, the commingling of uh, security issues and economic issues during the prior administration 
seem to further isolate the U.S. from the global community. Now that we've got a new administration in office, what are your expectations for how the USG is likely to address cyber issues in the U.S. and then globally over the next couple of years? Well, I think we can see some things that are in the early stages uh, with the new administration. And I think as we think about cybersecurity, we have to think about the, the larger context. I think the kind of approach that the Biden administration is likely to take, frankly, be more of a continuation of, of the traditions of international diplomacy, of working with allies that existed from the Obama administration uh, backwards. And so I think what we're likely to see, as, as there's been a great emphasis on the importance of multilateralism, I think we will treat our allies with more obvious respect, and we will try to work together to, to basically drive progress and, uh, and uh, reduce risk that we face. I think it felt like the, a major emphasis for the Trump administration was a geopolitical negotiation, the trade negotiations with, with China, uh, that, that did have very much of a bipartisan backing, that some of the longstanding issues that the U.S. has had with China came to the fore in the efforts that the Trump administration were bringing forward. So there was some bipartisan support there, but it felt like they took a lot of different issues and lumped them all together for geopolitical negotiations to try to get a trade deal, to try to use tariffs, to try to convince China to buy more goods from the United States and, and to try to have China play in a, in a manner that the United States government feels is fairer diplomatically. So I think there was a tendency to say, well, let's, let's block China. Let's, let's try to hurt China by hurting Huawei. And there was less of an emphasis on a forward looking in terms of what can be done to improve the American technological innovation advantage relative to China and, and, and grow that. In some ways, we're very far ahead and, and some others where China has really been catching up. And I think when you, you look at what the experts say about China, their infrastructure is, is very much backward compared to uh, what the United States and other development, developed countries are. So, but rather than simply having a block China or hurt China mentality, I think we're seeing some things where the Biden administration, and I think there's some bipartisan support for this as well, is trying to say, well, what can we do to help improve the competitiveness of, of, of America? And one example was the executive order. Well, there were a lot of executive orders, but the one that President Biden signed regarding the semiconductor industry uh, and supply chain risk. I think that it looks like there really is an effort to try to promote the growth in the American semiconductor industry. And uh, I think there really needs to be a private sector-led uh, technology industrial strategy to help, hopefully led by the private sector, that will kind of drive additional progress for what America needs to invest in, how we need to collaborate, uh, what the private sector needs to do. Perhaps the government may fund some pure R&D, that kind of thing. But I, I think we see some indications that the Biden administration is going to be focusing on on going forward like that. And there's also, uh, and I think there was an excellent paper came out around February 23rd by a group from the Hoover Institution at Stanford and the Tech Law and Security Program at American University, an article called Chinese Technology Platforms Operating in the United States Assessing the Threat. And when you listen to what, when you read what those experts said, I think it's the kind of thing that the Biden administration appears to be doing. And it's a good thing. It doesn't accelerate quickly to the issue of cybersecurity, but the idea of saying, let's, let's not assume that everything is of national security significance. Let's figure out what is of national security significance. And using the traditional kinds of risk management, risk assessment, risk management mechanism, let's try to make sure that we've got a handle on that. And I think there's going to be a greater recognition. Again, this is what the, the folks with Hoover and AU said, that 
there's a lot in terms of the, it's more of a continuum. It's not national security on one side and the economy on the other. Economic strength, uh, how you are strong economically, it's like a continuum between national security and economic well-being. And I think there's a recognition of that. And I think uh, hopefully there's going to be a focus and part of the executive order I mentioned, the emphasis on trying to assess risk on particular supply chains, uh, hopefully not just some things in a crisis such as the pandemic that we realized that, that we needed and we needed quickly, but also supply chain risk going forward in terms of what is most important to promote the kind, kinds of benefits of tr- free trade and frankly globalization that has uh, raised millions of people out of poverty and improved the standards of living of countries around the world, including China, the US, and, and many, many others. So I think the idea of, of disaggregating this lump geopolitical negotiation with China to figure out and focus on particular issues around national security, economics. And so when you look at some issues like that Huawei has had to deal with, issues like the ability of American companies to sell to us and some others, I think it's more likely than rather than lumping that into everything else, that more likely the, the Biden administration and talking with the industry will look at that, the issues around that and try to make a decision based on what's in the best interest of the United States. And I think that's the kind of analysis that's necessary, particularly when you're talking about selling non-sensitive technology and you're talking about a magnitude based on the procurements of Huawei alone that was on a consistent basis, about $12 billion a year. And we, we spiked it up to about $18 billion in 2019. But $12 billion a year is about 40,000 direct jobs. And very important for the American semiconductor industry. And you know, if, if, if Huawei is, is forced to go elsewhere for the long haul, those jobs are going to go away because we won't end up coming back. But finally, getting to your point about cybersecurity, I think what we see, and you mentioned solar winds. I think the Hafnium uh, issue with a Microsoft Exchange server, which may be even larger in terms of impact and scope than solar winds, if, if, if you can imagine that. Uh, I think it is, has the attention, uh, certainly of the Biden administration, of Congress and the media, that looking at, uh, in effect, another supply chain intrusion that didn't involve a nation state getting permission from the particular supplier, that the nation states can hack in and, and basically abuse global supply chains. And I think it's it's likely, although by no means certain, that that effort led by Ian Newberger out of the National Security Council uh, is hopefully going to raise the bar, again, building on a number of efforts like, like ITI, MITRE has done some great work on supply chain risk, NIST has done some great work. I think there's a likelihood that the bar will be raised and there will be greater emphasis on, on standards. Uh, there will be greater emphasis on conformance programs and a greater clarity about what has been the concept of a trusted supplier. Trusted suppliers were involved. It was, it was SolarWinds in the case of the SolarWinds situation. It was Microsoft in the case of the Microsoft Exchange server. And they were both trusted suppliers, but that wasn't good enough. And I think America is going to have to say, and, and, and we support this, of course, that America is going to have to say the bar really needs to be raised on cybersecurity, on supply chain risk on coming up with standards. We, we've got to get away from the traditional, oh, do you trust X? Do you trust Y? No, I don't trust anybody. The idea that's catching on of a zero trust concept for how to deal with these things. And I think we can learn some lessons from some of the very good work that's happening in, in Germany and the European Union with the European Network Information Security Agency, trying to come up with standards and performance programs, a much greater emphasis on the operator, the telecom and mobile operator, not just the equipment supplier. 
because cybersecurity really is a shared responsibility. Yes, of course it is. And, uh, that, you know, that, that's a lot to unpack. Thank you for the answer. I hope you're right about the direction that the U.S. government is, uh, is going to head in. And uh, I'm, I'm, I was very disappointed that the Trump administration didn't take this more seriously and used it instead as part of their, you know, part of Trump's uh, natural negotiating technique and posture to clump all of the stuff together so that he could do a little give back in exchange and all the rest of that. It might work in real estate. It doesn't work in international politics, I don't think. To your point about, you know, escalating zero-day attacks uh, uh, beyond the Microsoft Exchange uh, server and, you know, Hafnium or whoever it was, we now see, and, you know, CISA has issued emergency uh, orders to quickly get rid of all of this stuff because we now see these attacks are appear to be automated and appear to go well beyond the initial twenty to thirty thousand sites that was uh, all the news reports were estimating. And Chris Krebs just came out I think yesterday or Sunday and said, "Yeah, it's it's much broader than that. Trust me." You know, we're seeing all this stuff. You know, there's a, a suspicion, of course, that the follow-on uh, attackers are were not attributable to Chinese sources. Is this ever going to end? I mean, how deep do you think this is going to go? Well, and, and let me just back up a little bit and say that I think there was a lot of good work done in the cybersecurity arena under the Trump administration. I, I think the work of DHS and then CISA, uh, Ann Newberger's work at the National Security Agency, the work at the Department of Defense, private sector folks. I mean, there's been a, a tremendous amount of effort, uh, a great deal of progress. But frankly, I don't think the oversight by the, the overseers, I guess I'm not sure overseers is a word, but you know, congressional oversight was really adequate, although the effort was very substantial. The challenge that we now see reflected in experts, and I don't consider myself an expert, we're not really surprised by either the SolarWinds case or the Microsoft Exchange server. That really was not a surprise. I mean, for the politicians, like, oh, what a shock, this big impact, bad guys, they're in the system forever. No, that's pretty much what nation states can do. The level of commitment from the people in power was not requisite to the work that needed to be done by the people like in CISA and NSA and others that were trying to do the work. So hopefully this can become a a recognition and hopefully the media will pay attention to these issues. So the media can look at those who are doing the work, can look at what Congress is doing to to hold folks accountable and, and, and make some assessments about, are we making progress? What needs to be done? And part of that progress is going to have to be improving the ability to attribute the source of attacks, because that, that's very important internationally. And we've got to find some ways, and we can talk about it. We've got to hold individual organizations more accountable, uh, and we have to find ways to hold governments and, and companies accountable internationally for violating cyber norms. Yeah, and if it, if it was the Chinese, how would you hold them accountable? Well, I think that the system, and, and put aside the, the system of accountability that's necessary in the United States, but when you raise your defenses, you make it more difficult for the sophisticated actors to act using unsophisticated means. So often, and allegedly in the Microsoft Exchange server case, there were at least four zero days that were used, but the United States and other countries buy zero days every day from companies who sell them you know, e- e- exactly for this purpose. So we need to have greater attribution capabilities and technical attribution. And we need to think about saying, okay, internationally, let's take the cyber norms, the cyber diplomacy that's been going on for probably 20, 20 years, Uh, led by folks at the United Nations. And the focus has really been on governments. Well, as you know, cyberspace relies an awful lot on the work of 
of private companies. For example, the network operators that help run the internet around the world. I mean, some are government, but, but many are not. And the idea that you've got to say, well, look, let's establish some norms of conduct. Let's get governments to sign on to them. But let's expand beyond the traditional scope, which was government. Let's get companies to sign mutual trust agreements. And frankly, when you do a deep dive, and we had such a deep dive with some colleagues about what's been going on in Germany, when you look at the kinds of requirements that they're putting on companies, particularly the operators, as well as the equipment suppliers, to, to sign commitments that they're going to meet these particular requirements. And those kinds of those are contractual agreements, but I think we need to have companies sign such agreements with governments and governments sign agreements with governments saying that they won't do X, Y, and Z, and they're going to be accountable if they violate it. So you're quite familiar with the European Privacy Directive, the GDPR, where the, the potential punishment levels are, are gigantic, and there have been some big fines, up to 4% of gross global revenues for a company. We need to get companies internationally to have to sign these mutual trust agreements. And it'd be great if everybody signed it, like Germany suggesting that companies would sign with, with their customers to meet these requirements, and then have punishment levels that if, if companies fail to meet those, those norms of conduct, those mutual trust agreements, there have to be very significant consequences. Because so far, there are no consequences. And how do exactly. we expect that that's going to incentivize people to, to, to do anything better? Exactly. And the, the German model is a, is a great model and one that everybody should follow. I think it be, would cut down the, uh, a lot of things immediately, I think. Speaking of the, this, you know, we're talking about government and, you know, for listeners who, uh, to this program who, who may not be as close to the cybersecurity machinery as you and I are, you know, there's been a lot of talk about is whether this was a failure of intelligence or a failure of technology from if you just look at the federal federal systems component of the solar winds breach. You have worked inside the Beltway for several years, many years, and were, you know, part of the sausage making factory. What's your take on that? Well, that's a pretty tough question. I think that probably means we're out of time, Steve. It's been a pleasure to, to be with you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, um, okay. These are, are gigantic challenges, and we see the kind of work that experts are saying needs to happen here. And, and so you take a look at the activity within the United States. So there has not been adequate accountability uh, for government agencies to do what they need to do. They have not been held accountable. You saw some of the studies of General Accountability Office, you know, talking about, well, certain basic stuff were not done by any agencies. Yeah. You know, and, and then you have companies that are supposed to, to follow best practices. And you see that, say, the victim companies of, of the solar winds and of this Microsoft Exchange server attacks, they didn't detect this stuff. And in fact, solar winds and Microsoft didn't detect these attacks for a long time. So we've got to set some, you know, try to articulate some requirements for what companies, what the best practices, so you can detect stuff. I did a class for University of Maryland Business School last night, and we were talking about you know, the importance of corporate accountability, of corporate governance, that, you know, it's part of establishing a culture of, of ethics and compliance, and it's a culture of cybersecurity. And we have to make sure that they were asking me, well, what if a company outsources their cybersecurity? I said, they still have to maintain the ability to know whether the company they hired is doing what they're supposed to be doing. And it's kind of like, nobody's home, you know? And, and I'm hearing a lot of these experts, and I'm thinking back to the early days when we launched the cyber effort at DHS. I was part of a Tiger team with DOD and NSA and other agencies to, to launch the Tiger team that ended up setting up the, 
the DHS cyber effort. A lot of the same discussions are happening now. This is unbelievable. Oh, we got to share information. No, we need much greater capabilities. And we see some of the stuff that the European nations are doing within the European Union. They're trying to create visibility of, of, among all the government. Well, the United States has the CDM program, Continuous Diagnostic and Monitoring. That's a program to create visibility across all the agencies. When we look at the solar winds, we, we've got to recognize we've got to drill down. We've got to have a greater capability to see things in real time, to connect the dots in real time. And so we've got to make sure that there's visibility into the operators, there's visibility in the equipment suppliers, so that the, the certs and even the classified folks have access to some of this information. Now, obviously, you've got to follow the law, and, and, and that's paramount. But we've got to have a greater ability to detect the anomalous, the concerning activity. And we're seeing a lot of great stuff out of MITRE and NIST, as I said, in terms of resilience, that we've got to create these capabilities that when bad stuff happens, and some of this stuff's going to be machine to machine, it's going to be automated responses, eventually artificial intelligence is going to help a little bit. But we've got to start cabin stuff in. When you see something bad, you've got to have segmented the network, and then you cabin it in so you can, you can keep the, the, the risk confined. You can keep the, the, the bad stuff confined. I think these various third parties, the people we engage with, there's risk involved in all of this stuff. And we have, to, we have to create ways to incentivize and hold accountable those it's necessary to raise the bar. And, and, and I'll tell you one thing in terms of standards like 5G, I'm very encouraged that the U.S. government within the last couple of months has said they're going to get actively involved in the 5G standards effort. And that is hugely significant. We need more folks with resources who understand these issues to get involved to say, okay, what are the standards and best practices that people should do? But let's also let's figure out ways that we can be transparent. We can make it easier to tell if folks are doing what they're supposed to be doing and ways to hold them accountable if they don't. Amen. Let me switch gears a bit on you. Why don't you tell our listeners how a guy with an undergraduate degree in government and economics, and then a law degree from a great law school and long service as an attorney and, and a USG cyber lead ends up as a chief security officer for U.S. operations of one of the largest telecom companies on the planet? You know, I don't know. That's a good question. I'm going to have to think about that. In work I was doing in the legal community, I was acting general counsel of the U.S. Sentencing Commission. And one of the things that we had to look at was new technology offenses, how to punishment, what's more. And so I had to learn a lot about it. So I organized a conference, a national conference. Actually, it was at George Mason Law School and brought together a bunch of experts. And I was just fascinated by the challenges and the opportunities. And, and frankly, when, when the terrorist attacks of 9-11 happened, uh, I started thinking, you know, I, I feel like I've made a contribution to the legal efforts on the Hill and, and as a prosecutor and the sentencing commission. And I said, well, maybe I could get involved in these new technology offenses. These seems like things and using the fundamental lesson from 9-11, which I think one of those examples of lessons that we have to learn over and over again is the idea that let's remember that the lesson we were supposed to have learned from that, among others, was we can't wait till we have information that somebody's taking pilot lessons and they don't care about whether they land. We have to look at things from a risk perspective, and certainly risk management, risk governance is the way the world is right now. Although I think in terms of some of the things with the pandemic and, and some of the other uh, threats we've learned about, we have not taken the kind of risk-based approach. And that's one of the reasons I like the executive order that, that President Biden signed to help focus on, okay, for these different supply chain areas, what's the risk? What do we need to worry about and how are we going to protect it? And more organizations need to recognize that that's the approach. What's critical to my company? What are my business objectives? What's my risk environment? What is it I need to have up and running? What's the data I need to have it up and running? 
what do I need in the way of backups away from my current location so that I'll be able to get back up and running? That kind of analysis and trying to create better mechanisms to hold the boards of directors and the C-levels accountable to follow that kind of process. Not to expect them to be experts, but for them to to follow a, a serious risk management approach and make sure they prioritize the risks that need to be mitigated and have a fi- effective risk mitigation uh, in place. So for <laughs> me, it, I was really lucky. I organized this conference and uh, Howard Schmidt, the late Howard Schmidt, who had been a senior cyber person at Microsoft, uh, I invited to, to my conference and I called him up after the conference, uh, after they announced the formation, President uh, George Bush, the, the appointment of the, the committee that was gonna help draft the national strategy to secure cyberspace. And I asked him if I could come work for him and he said, sure. So it was basically pure luck, and uh, it's been quite an adventure ever since. <laughs> well, I ask that question for two reasons. One is because I don't think enough people know that you had that background, Andy, and I wanted to make sure that our listeners did. And secondly, that uh, you know we have a pretty significant cybersecurity educational initiative going on in my company, and uh, and I know it's always going to be interesting to people that you know are maybe in the C-suite or on boards of directors who are interested in cybersecurity and and kind of wonder about how career paths like that evolve. And to your point about the boards and the C-suites and not having the requisite knowledge and understanding, even though now we have you know, personal as well as professional liability issues around board members who fail in their duty to perform due diligence and, and, and know what, that their security plans are in place and what they actually mean. I would hope that uh, they would be relying more on the work that NIST and MITRE have been doing. Uh, after all, it's 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 complimentary. You know, they don't have to pay for it. So, anyway, last question I think is uh, from a long-term view. Cyberspace Solarium Commission wrote a terrific report a couple of times now in the last fifteen years, but most recently, and they even reduced it to I think a twenty-seven page or twenty-three page uh, summary for those that don't have the time <laughs> to read the whole report, what, is your, what are your thoughts about, are we ever going to implement this stuff at a national level? Well, I think it is inevitable that the United States and working closely with our allies will come up with a greater capability, better standards and best practices, better conformance programs, somewhat better transparency, somewhat better accountability to help raise the bar and, and and continue that journey uh, to try to get to a a greater ability to manage risk and and promote resilience. I think we will make uh, some very substantial progress in the next few years. It's gonna cost some money uh, and people have to be willing to to put the money in. Uh, It's gonna involve great collaboration. Fundamentally, I think when we talk about the 5G enabled technologies, I think we're talking about a common need we have around the world, that we need objective and transparent basis for knowing which products and services are worthy of trust. We need to know that these services we're going to increasingly come to depend on, whether it's government, private organizations, or us as individuals who may rely on the sensors to tell us whether we need to get that shot of medication to adjust the medication levels. We need those capabilities. And, and so this effort in response to solar winds and, and, and the hafium attacks, I think is going to help lead us to a better place. But we have to have with the new technology there's got to be real-time data transfer, real-time visibility. And talk about the computing power coming to the edge under 5G-enabled technologies. It's going to be very important for cybersecurity, awareness, detection, response, mitigation, and maintain the resilience of these operations. So 
I'm encouraged, but it's the kind of thing that we have to, uh, we ha- we're going to have to maintain vigilance and continue to work hard. One of the other things is that we have to facilitate competition, not just in the space where we work at telecom equipment supply. We need to encourage competition in cybersecurity and assurance and transparency and more R&D. What can be done to facilitate the ability to know whether folks are doing the right thing? I'll tell you, a year ago, if we got a second here, I asked a question of Ann Newberger when she was in charge of cybersecurity uh, at NSA. I asked her a question in a large invitation-only session uh, that, that she spoke at. I said, well, would NSA ever consider coming into Huawei facilities to take a look at what we do and how we do it and the extent to which we know what, what our other employees are doing and we follow separation of, of duties and independent check and, in, and internal uh, audit? Would NSA ever be willing to come into our facilities to make recommendations about how we could do a better job. And that's the kind of thing that we need to facilitate around the country, greater transparency so we can work toward greater assurance and greater accountability. Anne's response was, well, Huawei is not part of the U.S. defense industrial base, so we would not be able to come into your facilities. And, and that's a shame. <laughs> it's a very, seems like a very diplomatic answer to me too, but uh, you're right. It is a shame and it's terrific that Huawei makes that offer. We should do that with everyone that we're working with. And your your value prop on 5G is spot on. And I agree with you 100%. So I hope that uh, all of this is going to work out with the speed required that we're able to stay out in front of this as opposed to becoming consumed by it, which at the moment, it doesn't look very promising, but I'm sure I'm sure there are ways out of this. And, you know, this was a great 30 minutes or so, Andy. I, it's, it was terrific talking with you. And I, I hope I can have you back here in a few months and as we and figure out what, what else happened between, you know, uh, August and, and March. And I wanted to thank you again for taking time out of your schedule to share your opinions and explain a little bit about how these high-profile attacks uh, occur and, and what you think the future may hold. Well, you're quite welcome, Steve, and I'd welcome the opportunity to come back, and I'd welcome the opportunity to appear with somebody who may disagree with me on an issue or two. Thank you so much. I'll see if I can find somebody in the meantime. Take care. (laughs) All right. Thank you to our listeners also for joining us in another episode of our exploration into the complex world of cybersecurity and, and beyond. And until next time, I'm your host, Steve King, signing out. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at CyberTheory or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.